Well, I'd like to begin by pointing out that the first name of Frederick Jameson is spelled F-R-E-D-R-I-C. Uh, the reason I point that out is that uh, most scholars don't seem to be able to grasp that simple fact, uh, and that references to him, which are rife in the critical literature, uh, perhaps one-third of the time spell his first name wrong. So I thought it would be important for you to be among the cognoscenti uh, and to know that it is spelled in the way that I just mentioned. Uh, it's a strange thing. Uh, when I started teaching, I taught many, many, many sections of English 129, uh, and of course in the second semester the first text that we read was the Iliad. Now, Iliad is spelled I-L-I-A-D. Why it is? that of the student population I taught over all those years, hundreds and hundreds of students, fully a third of them spelled it I-L-L-I-A-D, I really couldn't say. But there are words that simply seem to be insusceptible of being spelled correctly, <laughs> and, one <of laughs> and, and, and one of those words is the first name of Frederick Jameson. So, um, stand advised. Uh, okay, now um, last time I talked about four possible options of an aesthetic nature uh, for a Marxist approach to literature, and passed them in review. Uh, I mentioned realism, both uh, realism according to the tastes uh, and, and theoretical preferences of Engels and Lukács, also tendentious realism uh, as it pervaded uh, the Soviet world, especially after 1934. Uh, uh, then also um, part the participatory aesthetic of figures like Walter Benjamin, the high modernist uh, aesthetic of the whole, uh, embraced particularly by Adorno. Those are the two uh, aesthetic modes that we passed in review last time. Uh, and finally, the idea that realism, being somehow outworn. Uh, having uh, developed hardening of the arteries as a kind of a bourgeois perspective on things, uh, needs somehow or another to be replaced aesthetically uh, in the Marxist view of things by something else. Uh, and perhaps the most eloquent proponent of replacing it with something uh, is Jameson, who earlier in the introductory chapter of The Political Unconscious, uh, much of which you've been assigned for today, uh, writes a section which he calls Magical Narratives, uh, and which uh, uh, promotes um, very much in keeping with the thinking of Northrop Frye about the role of romance uh, in society, particularly the religious role of romance in society, uh, proposes that an aesthetic of the romance, which entails uh, folklore, the folk tale, the fairy tale, uh, various forms of folk expression as magical resolution of conflicts that can't otherwise be resolved uh, is the more appropriate aesthetic to take up. And the long passage that I sent to you last night, uh, which I'd like uh, quickly to go over, um, is uh, meant uh, to further the promotion of, of this aesthetic, and also uh, to pose for us a critique of um, what the consequences would be of lingering with a realist aesthetic. And so Jameson says, uh, second passage on your sheet, 
let Scott, Balzac, and Dreiser serve as the – and remember that Balzac is the favorite author of Engels and Scott is the favorite author of, at least in 1927, of Lukács, uh, and Dreiser is a figure uh, from the so-called naturalist movement, the American novelist, uh, who uh, is a very appropriate addition to the list, and so it's in that context that, uh, that Jameson is dropping these particular names. Let Scott, Balzac, and Dreiser serve as the non-chronological markers of the emergence of realism in its modern form. These first great realisms are characterized by a fundamental and exhilarating heterogeneity in their raw materials and by a corresponding versatility in their narrative apparatus. At such moments, a generic confinement to the existent – in other words, the only thing you have to do if you're a realist is talk about things the way they really are uh, – at such moments, a generic confinement to the existent has a paradoxically liberating effect on the registers of the text and releases a set of heterogeneous historical perspectives the, – the past for Scott, the future for Balzac, and the process of commodification for Dreiser normally felt to be inconsistent with a focus on the historical present. In other words, Scott's treatment of history as dialectical against the foil of the present there is uh, envisioned a kind of romanticized feudal um, uh, evocation of a feudal past. Uh, and so it is in turn. I don't want to linger long over this with the other writers. Uh, normally felt to be inconsistent with a focus on the historical present. Indeed, this multiple temporality tends to be sealed off and recontained again in high realism and naturalism. In other words, it starts getting too easy. And the formulas of representing and evoking the real begin to become, as I said, sclerotic. They begin, they begin to harden. They begin to confine us in ways uh, that had hitherto been liberating. Where a perfected narrative apparatus, in particular the threefold imperatives of authorial depersonalization, that is to say, the voice in Stil and Direct Libre, Erlitereda, uh, indirect discourse, uh, authorial depersonalization, unity of point of view, and restriction to scenic representation begin to confer on the realistic option the appearance of an asphyxiating, self imposed. In other words, this is all I can say, and this is the only way I can say it. There are no other possibilities uh, of literary expression because I now feel confined to this, uh, to this reification of the real, this insistence that uh, the real, um, the evocation of the real <coughs> is my only literary option, uh, and so it's no longer liberating. Uh, it is in the context of this gradual reification in late capitalism that the romance once again comes to be felt as the place of narrative heterogeneity and freedom from the reality principle, and that is uh, in a way a jab at Freud, uh, but at the same time an acknowledgment that Freud uh, participates in a, a sort of growing despair over the necessity of confining oneself to the real, um, the, and freedom from the reality principle to which a now oppressive realistic representation is the hostage. Okay, so that's the aesthetic of Frederick Jameson. And before we begin an analysis, that is to say, before we begin to consider his three horizons or concentric circles of interpretation 
from other points of view, I thought it would be interesting to find this Romance aesthetic in those three levels. We're talking, of course, about the political, uh, the social, the historical. The political, uh, the kind of chronicle-like, as he puts it, a record of successive uh, happen happenings in a fictive context as uh, constructed as a plot by some individual voice. The social as the conflict or emergence into uh, our awareness of its being a conflict of what Jameson calls ideologies, that is to say, ways of thinking about the world as expressed by disparate and conflicting classes. And then finally, the historical, which Jameson calls necessity. At the end of the essay, he says it's what hurts, uh, but which, in terms of literary analysis, as we'll see, has to do with understanding the, the overlap of the succession of modes of production as they unfold uh, in historical time. And we'll have more to say about modes of production. But our basic three horizons then, uh, which I, in which I'm now going to look for the Romance aesthetic, our basic three horizons then are what Jameson calls the political, the social, and the historical. It's, it's important that he does sometimes call them concentric circles, because you have to understand that as you advance through the three stages, you're not leaving anything behind. The historical is contained within the social, and the social is contained within, I'm sorry, the political is contained within the social, and the social is contained within the historical. And all of that uh, is what we is, is, is not to be left behind, but is rather to be rethought, reconsidered. Jameson sometimes uses the word rewritten, uh, thinking of the text that one, that is the object of one's study uh, as one advances through these three stages. So that's why that's why he thinks it appropriate to call them concentric circles. Well, in any case, so what is the Political, the essential political uh, moment of the creative act. Well, it's what Jameson, borrowing from Kenneth Burke, calls the symbolic act. As an individual writer, I undertake to resolve symbolically a contradiction, and Marxism is always about contradiction. That is to say, the way in which the way in which the perspective of any class. Uh, uh, exists in, in a contradictory relation, both with its own needs and desires and with other classes. In any case, then, the symbolic act at the political level is designed to resolve a contradiction that can't be resolved by other means. In other words, it's a fantasy. It is the fairy tale. It is the princess and the pauper. It is the arbitrary happy ending tacked onto a situation for which in reality there would be no happy ending. In other words, it is a romance perspective about a world the, re the realistic approach to which um, uh, would somehow or another leave us feeling much more confined. Slumdog Millionaire uh, is an interesting example. Uh, it's an auteurist film made by Danny Boyle 
uh, an interesting example of an individual act which magically resolves a contradiction through the whole Bollywood apparatus that it brings to bear on it. And the contradictions, of course, are rife between Hindu and Muslim, the contradictions entailed in globalization, the contradictions of caste, all of these contradictions not to be resolved uh, on a realistic plane, nevertheless can be resolved by an individual symbolic act. You hit the lotto. You know, you win uh, against all odds a prize that makes you a millionaire. Who wants to be a millionaire? Well, we all want to be millionaires, um, but only one of us be miraculously, magically, uh, through a series of completely implausible happen happenstances, is able to do so. Now, notice this. It's not that it doesn't happen. People do hit the lotto. People do win the $64,000 question of whatever it is. It's not, that, it, it's not that it's absolute never, never land, but the point is, and, and I think this is really ultimately the point of that extravagant dance in the railroad station at the end of the film, the point, of, the point is that even were it to happen, in reality it wouldn't resolve contradictions. That is to say, your life would not have the kind of scripted perfection. You get the girl. Everything is going to be perfect. The whole world falls in line, dancing behind you. You know, this just this th 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 this just doesn't happen. In other words, um, it's sort of tragic to hit the lotto, as many stories of that kind um, have made clear to us. And that, it seems to me, is finally how. The film is somewhat self-conscious about its nature as a symbolic act. In any way, that's the romance element of the political level of interpretation as understood by Jameson. Now the second level brings to the surface the element of subversion that has to be entailed in this same fairy tale resolution of a conflict that can't otherwise be resolved. There are all sorts of other aspects at the second level, but remember I'm discovering the romance aesthetic here in all three levels before turning to other matters having to do them. So let's say, I mean, the, at the second level on page 1297, uh, the right-hand column, um, you have um, uh, Ernst Bloch's understanding of the fairy tale. This is at the second level about uh, two-thirds of the way down. Thus, for instance, Bloch's reading of the fairy tale, with its magical wish-fulfillments and its utopian fantasies of plenty and the pays de cocagne, restores the dialogical and the, the big rock candy mountain, basically, is the pays de cocagne, uh, restores the dialogical and antagonistic content of this form by exhibiting it as a systematic deconstruction and undermining of the hegemonic aristocratic form of the epic. In other words, it's not just a symbolic act, the fairy tale, it is a thumbing of the nose at hegemony. It is, in other words, an act of antagonism which of course recognizes the impossibility of resolution or reconciliation precisely 
in its register of antagonism, so that at the second level, the social level, in which the ideological voices of various classes and perspective are openly in conflict, you don't get resolution. What you get is subversion and reaction. You get, in other words, a tension of voices that is not meant to resolve anything but is rather meant to lay bare the conflicts that are entailed. And still, however, in doing this, <coughs> you get the kind of, the, the, the kind of, of uh, carnivalesque uprising from below which uh, Jameson associates with romance. That letting off of steam, that uh, uh, entertaining the possibility of utopia that you get, for example, in the early modern period on that day which is called uh, in, in, in which um, someone is called the Lord of Misrule, and the entire social order for one day is inverted, uh, and the low are elevated to uh, positions of authority, uh, and for one day uh, you get the keys to the castle, in effect. This is a day in which conflict is expressed and not resolved because everybody knows that tomorrow it's going to be the same old, same old, uh, and back to business as usual. And so, but the romance element, the idea that the idea that the that folk expression is simultaneously the expression of a wish, a wish similar to the wish that's expressed at the first political level. But, 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 it, but the expression of a wish which is collective, that is to say, in behalf of a class and a perspective, and which is also with great self-consciousness not a wish that can in any way expect to be fulfilled, but rather one that is used subversively with respect to the dominant uh, ideology uh, that it, 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 it expresses its abrasiveness uh, toward. Third level <coughs> involves the way in which uh, there is at any given time, the historical level, a dominant mode of production. A mode of production is a system, is a system of thought or production uh, generated by a, an overarching social or economic arrangement. Uh, Jameson lists them in his text uh, and we'll come back to them. Uh, and we'll read that listing and we'll think about those terms. But Jameson gives an excellent example of the way in which, in the latter part of the 18th century, the Enlightenment began to be the dominant form of expression of an emergent, mercantile, successfully capitalist bourgeoisie. That is to say, the values that drove uh, uh, the development of industrialization and capital were those values emerging from feudal uh, and aristocratic ideals, less realistic, less engaged with actuality and the way in which you can actually get things done in the world, uh, the Enlightenment is understood as an expression of an emerging new mode of production, capitalism as it succeeds feudalism. But, Jameson points out, and here's where romance comes in, and then after that we'll move on to our next point, 
But, Jameson points out, at the same time you get enlightenment, at the same time that that does seem to become the dominant form of expression, you also get two modes of resistance or contestation. On the one hand you have Romanticism, which can be understood in this context as a kind of atavistic throwback to aristocratic and feudal idealism, codes of conduct, beliefs, uh, uh, visions of utopia uh, within Romanticism, all of them sort of trying to recode uh, in an age of enlightenment um, various sorts of idealism that had come to seem outmoded. So that's a kind of, of uh, as it were, reactionary mode of production overlapping with or expressing itself through uh, the dominant one. And then at the same time you get folk resistance to the increasing mechanization of the Enlightenment with political economy and with the rise of social engineering uh, and with the various forms of of, of social organization associated with, utilitari with utilitarianism, you get, a, you get folk resistance, you get popular resistance in the forms of protest, frame-breaking, uh, disruption of labor activity, uh, protest against industrialization, all of which also, because it insists on earlier forms of agricultural and industrial sort of cottage industry and so on, all of which is also atavistic, also a throwback uh, to the way in which labor is performed or conducted uh, under feudalism. And so that too, uh, in the form of folk expression, of longing for, in this case, a utopian past, more agrarian, more individualized as a, a, as a mode of labor, more cottage-oriented. In all of this you get um, uh, an overlapping mode of production. So the tension among modes of production, which is the focus of analysis at the historical level, the third historical level, can also be understood in terms of the romance of utopian nostalgia. All right, so that then just to show how <coughs> Jameson's aesthetic, his sense of the importance of romance, can be seen to pervade the way in which he understands analysis at all three of these levels. So that's his aesthetic. The question then is, what is the interpretive payoff of undertaking literary analysis at these three levels. That is to say, why should we, why should we take the trouble to do it? What's so interesting about it? <coughs> well, from Jameson's point of view, this of course is the title of his book, each of these three modes of analysis uh, is designed to disclose, to, to uncover, to lay bare an element of the political unconscious. As for deconstruction, as for Freud, this sense of a political unconscious exposes, reveals something that is antithetical to ordinary consciousness. That is to say, uh, undermines the our conventional understanding of things, shows us that beneath our conventional understanding of things there are laws and causes <coughs> and dynamics at work. Uh, that we need to understand. Uh, in this case, however, 
the unconscious in question is not a linguistic unconscious, it is not a psychological unconscious, it is a political unconscious. Insofar, in other words, as we are political animals, the acts that we perform, the dialogues that we engage in, the modes of production that we participate in, all of them have political ramifications, that is to say, we, that we, we, we do what we do as opposed to doing other things for political reasons of which we may not be fully aware, hence the emphasis in analysis of this kind on the political unconscious. So again, the three levels. Going back to the idea of the symbolic act, what political unconscious, in other words, is revealed? By a, by a symbolic act. Well, Jameson gives a wonderful example taken from structuralism, and, he, and you can see that he leans very heavily on structuralism for his understanding uh, of, the way in which, of the way in which something is going on in a narrative form <coughs> of which it is not immediately apparent that anybody can be aware. Take, for example, Caduveo face painting. Why? Levi-Strauss asks, both in The Savage Mind and again in Tristropique, why the excessive complexity of these paintings, why the curious tension in the marks on the faces between the vertical and the horizontal? Why is, you know, why, in other words, do you get a kind of, of a feeling of tension, aesthetic beauty, but also of, 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 of tension and complication? In this cross-hatching, in this sense of the relation between the vertical and the horizontal, <coughs> Jameson's argument, which he brings out more clearly than Levi-Strauss, but Levi-Strauss says the same thing, uh, contrasting the Caddoveo in this respect that with neighboring tribes like the Bororo. The explanation is that the Caddoveo are a hierarchical society. Uh, in which there are open and obvious forms of inequality that one must perforce be aware of as a member of the tribe. But that neighboring tribes, and this is something that probably the tribe itself can observe, work out a way of seeming to resolve the contradictions in inherent in hierarchy by the exchange of moiety, moieties, of, or which is to say of of, of kinship gifts and wedding gifts and so on uh, that, uh, that Levi-Strauss talks about. And this exchange of moieties seems to impose on these social orders in real life, in real terms, a way of making society more equal than it might otherwise be. Yes, it's still hierarchical, but at the same time wealth is distributed, each person has his own form of asserting dignity, and so on. The Cataveo doesn't have this. Levi-Strauss's and Jameson's point is that the Cataveo never really worked that out, so that they're stuck with a simple form of hierarchical organization. Face painting, then, according to Levi-Strauss, followed by Jameson, is their way of symbolically resolving the problem by introducing the horizontal, by introducing, in other words, the ways in which other tribes have successfully offset hierarchy by ways of, of distributing wealth more equally, wealth and prestige more equally. 
and that the symbolic act which other tribes were able to accomplish in real life, in real terms. The Caduveo expressed, uh, accomplished individually, each individual woman painting her face as a symbolic act, a symbolic act expressing the political unconscious, because this is not an act, we suppose, of which any individual is aware. I mean, you can the, the, the unawareness, the lack of consciousness of what's going on in a story um, is much more readily available to us in the Oedipus myth, because that's the part of Levi-Strauss's uh, structural study of myth that we happy, happen to have read. The next part is Caduceo <laughs> face painting. But the structure in the structural study of myth, Levi-Strauss begins by talking about the Oedipus myth. Well, the, the whole point of that is, um, gee, there's a terrible contradiction. Born from two or born from one? Plainly, no individual version of the story, certainly not Sophocles' version, um, is saying to itself, oh, this is a terrible contradiction. I don't know whether I'm born from two people or born from one person. That's, that is the unconscious, in other words, of the story, which is brought out, brought to the surface by a structuralist analysis of the myth. Jameson doesn't talk about it because it's not in any obvious and immediate way, uh, a political problem or a, a problem susceptible of Marxist analysis. It is, perhaps, ultimately, everything is, but uh, not immediately. And so he turns instead to a discussion of the Caduveo myth, um, which has as its unconscious an issue that's obviously a political one. But it is nevertheless the case that a structural analysis of a symbolic act is designed to and will inevitably reveal an element of unconscious thought, political or otherwise. And that then is the way in which the political unconscious, as Jameson describes it, is brought out at the first political level of understanding, uh, the individual symbolic act. Now at the second level, the social, in which the text, as Jameson says, rewrites itself not as an individual act but as very much in the spirit of Bakhtin, um, a heteroglossal expression of voices, of points of view, writing themselves as it were through the text. There the political unconscious in question um, is something that uh, it has to be understood in terms of ideologies. In other words, people uh, reflexively express, perhaps unbeknownst to themselves, views and opinions which are intelligible not arising out of their individuality, not because they are who they are, as they themselves might say, but rather because of their economic class and prestige status. In other words, because of their place in the world, it follows that they will hold certain views. They will be the mouthpieces, in other words, for certain ideologies. And those ideologies, uh, Jameson understands, uh, to be at least in part unconscious. One doesn't know, in other words, that the opinions one so fervently expresses and so devoutly believes in are opinions conditioned by the social circumstances in which one finds oneself. So that literature then becomes a kind of drama of ideologies, a representation of unresolved conflict, uh, sort of manifest in the variety of class 
uh, or status voices uh, brought to bear. And you can see this is the point at which uh, Jameson's work is closest to Bakhtin's and most, and most clearly reflects some of the preoccupations of Bakhtin as, as we've encountered them already. Jameson gives a very good example of the way in which this conflict works because it's uh, it, it, part, part of the mystery of these clashes is that they are always is, is that they always present themselves with a sh within a shared code. This already begins to look forward to the idea of the mode of production. Uh, at the bottom of page 1296, Jameson is talking about the, 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 the violent religious controversies of the 17th century in England uh, between Cavalier and Roundhead, between uh, all the controversies uh, surrounding uh, the uh, interregnum of Cromwell, uh, the restoration of Charles II, uh, and the tremendous ferment, religious, largely religious ferment, uh, taking place during those periods, during that period. But this ferment, for any Marxist, and Christopher Hill is the leading historian writing about this period who has made, made it most clearly uh, intelligible in these terms, uh, for any Marxist, these, this conflict has an underlying political unconscious. That is, its ultimate motives are an assertion of rights uh, and uh, an expression of class views. This is the way Jameson puts it, bottom of page 1296. The normal form of the dialogical is essentially an antagonistic one. He's, he's alluding here to Bakhtin, for whom frequently the dialogical is simply a kind of a happy cacophony of voices, uh, a carnivalesque uh, expression of chaos from below, all of which is a kind of yeast-like ferment um, and somehow or another in the long run uh, uh, energizing uh, and socially progressive. Uh, but Jameson points out that, um, dialo that the dialogium is, is, is very often uh, expressive of conflict as well, an antagonistic one, and that the dialogue of class struggle is one in which two opposing discourses fight it out within the general unity of a shared code. Thus, for instance, the shared master code of religion becomes in the 1640s in England the place in which the dominant formulations of a hegemonic theology are reappropriated and polemically modified. In other words, the Church of England stands for, as, and this is the word that was used, establishment. Roundhead points of view, various forms of Puritanism and other forms of religious rebellion are anti-establishment, and yet they are all coded within the sort of discourse of the Christian religion. That is to say, they have to fight it out on a common battlefield, and that's the way it is with conflict of this kind. Maybe a contemporary example uh, would be not so much in the sphere of religion. Uh, well, today one could could speak again uh, of religion, but uh, in the 60s and 70s it was maybe more a question of ethics. Think, for example, of the sexual revolution. The common, you know, ag again there's a common ground. You know, a sense of the centrality of sexual conduct to human life. But there are, but but what you get 
um, in the not so much perhaps conflict of classes as conflicts of generations in this case, what you get in the conflict of generations is an inversion of values, not a new set of values exactly, but a simple transvaluation of what exists. Everything that one faction considers bad, uh, another faction transvalues and considers good. The very, th the, 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 the very thing against which one is warned is the thing that one rushes to embrace and so on. So once again, you get a clash, an unresolved clash, but a clash that arises from and participates in the semiotic structure of a common code. Right? And that's the way uh, in which social antagonism expresses itself uh, at the second level, uh, and it usually involves, because there, is an, uh, there are underlying interests, uh, elements of the political unconscious, brings to the surface elements of the political unconscious. Finally, at the third level, what comes out, what is made manifest, is the tension or clash among modes of production as they jostle each other historically. It's understood the, the, the danger, as Jameson puts it, of thinking in terms of a succession of modes of production is that each one of those modes of production might seem like a synchronic moment. In other words, if you're in capitalism, you might get lulled into thinking that no other mode of production is available. If you're in patriarchy, you might get lulled into thinking that no other mode of production is available. And yet, as Jameson points out, the tension between, uh, bet bet between corporate hierarchy and patriarchal hierarchy, the tension, in other words, which uh, very often drives a wedge, has driven a wedge in polemic between Marxist and feminist points of view, uh, is a reflection of the coexistence of modes of production from completely different eras, one contemporary, one completely, uh, uh, at least it insofar as it was the dominant, uh, a thing of the past, and yet persisting uh, and still uh, overlapping with a mode of production uh, that is contemporary. So all of that uh, is, is, sort of is, is simply a matter of historical fact, but in literary analysis, in literary analysis, um, you begin, you, you begin to, to think of it in more formal terms, and you see, uh, for example, uh, the very choice of verse form, and I'm, I'm taking as an example uh, uh, Shelley's famous poem, The Ode to the West Wind, you see the very choice of verse form as an instance of what Jameson calls the ideology of form and can, under, can be understood in terms of the conflict of mode of production. The verse form of Shelley's Ode to the West Wind is simultaneously, it has five strophes, and each strophe is exactly the same in form. It is simultaneously a sonnet and, the first twelve lines of which, concluding in a couplet, uh, a succession of terza rima. Now these two forms, brought together, synthesized as a single strophic form in Shelley, are coded in entirely different ways. Each aspect of them has an ideology. 
Teretzerima is coded prophecy because it is in the tradition of Dante. It's the verse form in which the Divine Comedy is written, and it is an, a mode that is expressive of hope that resolves all contradiction uh, in the Divine, in the revelation of the Divine, in the Paradiso. So that the Terzerima expresses for Shelley the hope of the poem, which is that the west wind will be through him the, prophet, the trumpet of a political prophecy. If winter's here, can spring be far behind, uh, revolution is in the offing, everything's going to be great. But at the same time, the poem is shot through with a kind of pessimism, a sort of, if you will, realism, an awareness that this notion of prophecy is rather far-fetched. Why should the wind do his bidding? The wind is just wind, it's not inspiration. Um, therefore, the, the very stanza which is written in Terza Rima is written at the same time as a sonnet, fourteen lines. And the first stanza in particular is coded not just as a sonnet, but also as an allusion specifically to one sonnet in particular, Shakespeare's 73rd, which begins, That time of year in me thou mayst behold, uh, uh, in which I'm getting old. My bare root, my, my, I don't have any hair left, I'm, I'm, sort of, I'm just a bare ruined choir where late sweet birds sang. Um, in other words, I'm in a parlous state, I'm getting old, and there's nothing to be done about it. Uh, at the end of the poem, uh, the embers of my fire are about to be, uh, are about to be snuffed out. Um, there is just no hope for it. Uh, that's the way it is. You get old. In other words, winter's here and spring isn't coming. There is no prophetic possibility. There is only the reality of the trajectory of a lifespan. If there's rise, there's also fall. If there's development, there's also decline and decay. And these, uh, as, the, as, as the sonnet form codes it, are simple facts of life that poetic idealism, that romanticism cannot override. So what you get in Shelley's verse form is a tension between ideas. The, uh, the, the, the prophetic idea, which you can associate with a with a feudal and theocentric world in which the contradictions of reality really can be resolved theologically, on the one hand, and a kind of proto-realist tradition in which we just have to come to terms with the way things are, uh, coded through, which is after all, uh, proto-enlightenment. I mean, and, Sh and Shakespeare is often sort of th thought of as a proto-enlightenment figure. Uh, uh, and that is coded through the sonnet. So formally, both the Terzerima and the sonnet participate in what Jameson calls the ideology of form, and they, res they reflect modes of production, feudal and enlightenment respectively, and they, respect and they reflect attitudes that one can associate with those modes of production. So that's an example of the way in which the, the sort of the political, perhaps one had better call it quasi-conscious, because Shelley was an incredibly self-conscious poet, <laughs> the way in which the political quasi-conscious expresses itself 
at the third or historical level of analysis. Um, now, um, so in formal terms, and I've already and, and, and I've already sort of gotten into this, and, and I'll go through it rather quickly because there isn't much time left. Um, in formal terms, um, we can think of the uh, the essential critical uh, task at the first or historical level as one of thematization. That is to say, what theme is the plot structure of an individual symbolic act trying to express? What are we, you know, what is the contradiction that's being resolved in this symbolic act? At the second level, the formal principle that we, that we do bring to bear is the idea, the Bakhtinian idea of heteroglossia, the clash of voices, the, the way in which the voice is no longer individual but rather social, uh, the representative of a social point of view, and it expresses itself through um, uh, the, 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 the individual uh, author's writing. And at the third level, you get what Jameson calls a repertoire of devices. And I've already uh, reflected a little bit on that. Let me just add another example, also taken from Romanticism, in keeping with uh, Jameson's exemplification of the overlap of modes of production as being particularly interesting in the Age of Enlightenment. Uh, in Romanticism, there's a, long, there's a long tradition leading up to it of the formal Pindaric ode. Uh, Wordsworth is still making use of that tradition in writing his ode, Intimations of Immortality, but in the meantime, he and Coleridge have developed a new kind of ode, if you will, which is called the conversation poem. Uh, Coleridge's Frost at Midnight, This Lime Tree Bower My Prison, Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey, notable examples of the conversation poem. Now, the difference is very clearly intelligible in terms of a conflict of modes of production. The formal ode, uh, derived ultimately from Pindar, celebrating uh, Olympic victories of aristocratic patrons in Greece, uh, horse races, foot races, wrestling matches, uh, that's, that's the original purpose to which the formal ode was put, uh, plainly uh, is coded, once again, uh, feudal aristocratic. Whereas the conversation poem belongs very much, as the title, as the word suggests, in the public sphere. It's the atmosphere of the coffee house. It's the atmosphere in which people sit down and talk together, exchange views, address each other. It is a poem always of address to some individual person that turns to that person at a certain point, um, uh, evokes. The nature of that person sometimes solicits that person's opinions. In other words, it's a poem that performs dialogism. It's a poem that performs uh, the sense of, of the give and take of a much more open democratic culture in the public sphere. And so you can see that the very transition from the formal ode to the conversation poem is itself intelligible as uh, a transition among, uh, uh, or what Jameson calls, a cultural revolution brought about by a seismic shift in modes of production. All right, so these exemplify in various ways, uh, in various ways what can be done with these three levels. Jameson himself uh, reminds us of the dangers. 
if we think of a narrative as a symbolic act, we're much too prone either to forget that it's based in reality by emphasizing the structuralist nature of what's going on, or to forget that, that form is involved at all uh, by emphasizing the social contradiction that's being resolved. And as Jameson says, these two dangers at the first level are the danger of structuralism and the danger of vulgar materialism. The point in analyzing the symbolic act is to sustain a balance or a synthesis between formal uh, and uh, social uh, elements within the text. Um, the, at, the, at the second level, the problem is that if we start thinking in terms of unreconcilable class conflict, our analysis can become static, as though class perspectives didn't shift, as though uh, one perspective might succeed another as the hegemonic. In other words, as though change didn't take place, as though there was always the same old, same old in class conflict. The boss is always going to speak demeaningly of the worker, the worker is always going to laugh at the boss behind his back. Uh, this is the way it is, this is the way it will always be. There are static relations, in other words, uh, among the classes that history can't resolve. And finally, uh, at the third level, there's the danger of thinking in terms of impasse. Uh, late capitalism, for example, as an impasse that simply can't be surmounted. Think of Adorno. Think of Adorno and his incredible gloom about the culture industry. There isn't much hope in Adorno, is there? And by the same token, you could argue that poor old Jameson, you know, talking about history as necessity, history as what hurts, you know, history as just what has happened, you know, by the same token, you could argue that Jameson too is perhaps a little bit subject to this sense of impasse, which is why um, I quote for you, as these people themselves often do, you know, the ringing uh, warning of, Mar of Marx in the eleventh thesis on Feuerbach, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways, the point, however, is to change it. That is ultimately the focus of Marxist analysis. Tony, in the remaining minute. Now, a reified, realist approach to Tony, the kind that Jameson criticizes in his sheet, would point out that nothing happens to Nito and Speedy. They are manifest villains, and yet at the same time, nothing can happen to them. They are simply, they simply have their place in the social order. One of them is a fastidious aristocrat who doesn't want to get dirty. The other is, you know, completely committed to productivity and the time clock and the work ethic, a bourgeois, speedy. Uh, there they are, nothing to be done. They're not nice to Tony, but nothing happens to them. There is no recrimination. But then at the first level, if we understand this as a symbolic act, the resolution of what would otherwise be a hopeless conflict is through friendship. The friendship of Bumpy and Tony, the fact that it's perfectly okay if I'm just a working guy, I've got my buddies, we go out, we drink beer, we have a good time, life is great. You know, that is, you know, it doesn't matter, in other words, that there's a class structure, that there's a social system, you know, I'm happy. Tony says, I like my job. That in itself, of course, is a resolution, uh, is a symbolic act and a resolution in advance of the conflicts that the story might otherwise manifest. The second level, you get the discourse of ideologies. I can't help you, says Nito of the car. I don't want to get dirty. 
I can't help you, says Speedy the car. I am too busy. I can help you, says Bumpy. But notice that this is all within an individual single code. In that, that, that's what the, the, the complete parallelism of these three utterances shows us. Within a single code, these ideologies, which can't really be, be, be resolved, get themselves expressed. All right, now finally, modes of production. Plainly, the very existence of uh, Nito and Speedy in the same story suggests that there is a certain tension between the feudal and the bourgeois at work, but it's not a tension that in any way necessarily works itself out. The important thing to notice here, it seems to me, is the conflict between pulling and pushing. I mean, it's very interesting, I've said this before, that a tow truck Something that pulls, and, and, and you know, once again, you know, this, uh, Tony is a mode of production, right? I mean, he's a tow truck, right? Uh, something, something that pulls has to be pushed. Bumpy, you know, is like the little engine that could, is a sort of a throwback to an earlier, uh, less energized, less powerful mode of production. He has to push. Think of the way walls get put up. You know, a prefabricated wall before the invention of the crane and the pulley, has to be pushed up by a bunch of people. Pushing is the essential labor mode before the kind of technology arises that makes it possible to pull something. After that, you have a crane. You run the hook down, you just pull the wall up into place. Before then, you've got maybe one person standing on a rafter with a rope, kind of pulling, but everybody else is down on the ground pushing. And so the relationship between pushing and pulling in the story is a crucially important one which suggests the overlap of older and newer modes of production, uh, all of which can be resolved at Jameson's third or historical level of analysis. Okay, so much then for Jameson and for Tony. We'll be coming back to Tony again next time in the context of talking about the new historicism.